If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, the sermon text this morning is uh, taken from the first 16 verses in, in Matthew chapter 5, and this is the Beatitudes, as you know. The sermon title this morning is Citizens of the Kingdom. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As we've been preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, we left off in the in the we left off in, in past weeks with the narrative where Jesus had begun his ministry and he was healing and, and preaching the message of the gospel and there was this great expectation that this person could be the long promised Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for. So there was this great anticipation. But it was an anticipation that this Messiah would come and establish a kingdom much like the kingdom of Solomon and even greater than the kingdom of Solomon. That he would be a great conqueror. That he would conquer the Romans and eject them out of the land of Israel. That God's kingdom there might be restored. 
So they had in mind this great king, this great savior, this great conqueror, strong and mighty, who would establish an earthly kingdom. So now, Jesus, he's, he's come. He's, he's preached this gospel of the kingdom. And he's proven that there's something special about him in the fact that he was performing all these miracles. So you can imagine the crowds that are there. And now, for the first time in this gospel, we start to see the content of that message of the gospel of the kingdom of God that he was preaching. And I want to go through and I want to, I want to start to say just a few introductory words before I get into each of the Beatitudes. And I want to say also that this is a, a kind of an overview sermon. It is, we're not going to mine all the gems that are found in each one of these Beatitudes here this morning. I want us to, to look at the, the whole together and, 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 and see the context um, here this morning. What I want to say first, uh, first point, overarching point about these Beatitudes is that they represent the character traits of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Um, Jesus often began parables by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like or may be compared to. Here, He is telling us what citizens of the kingdom are like. Notice that these Beatitudes are bracketed. The first and the last have the same uh, blessing listed. It is this, that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see that they're bracketed in such a way to make us understand that he's talking about citizens of this kingdom. And what I also want to say here this morning is that citizens of the kingdom of heaven and Christians are one and the same. This is what Jesus is talking about here this morning in this, in this text. The next thing I want to talk about is what is meant by blessed in essence, the word means happy, but is different from happiness as, as, as we would think about in our, in our common language, in our common culture. Um, you can think about, think about the Declaration of Independence, right? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but what, what, what's there in the middle of the Declaration of Independence? Life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness, happiness right? Absolutely. Um, but this is maybe even a deeper happiness than even the founders of this country had in mind. Maybe, maybe they had it a little bit of it in mind, certainly more than we probably do today in our contemporary culture. Um, but, but what this true happiness is, it's, it's, it means to be truly and deeply satisfied. It also has a, a context of those to be congratulated in a way too, but not, not again how we would maybe completely think about that. Um, when we think blessing or blessedness or bless, blessed, we would also think about the favor of God. And, and I think another idea that we want to, as we go through, that you hopefully you'll see here is, is a real fulfillment in life. People who are blessed are happy in this sense that they are not easily affected by the concerns and circumstances 
of the world around them. That's the kind of blessed or blessedness that, that, that Jesus is talking about here. It's not shallow happiness. The next point I want to make before we get into the Beatitudes here this morning is that all Christians are to have all of these character traits. It is interesting to note that there are really seven character traits here. People will say there are eight Beatitudes because blessed... Blessed is said eight times, but I would say that the last one is more what happens to those who have these uh, character traits. Um, and it's interesting to, you know, to think about that in terms of uh, numbers have, have significance in the Bible uh, oftentimes. And what does, what does the number seven represent in the Bible? It is a number that represents completion, Right? So we see that. We see that this is, this is the picture. This is the complete picture of what it is to be a citizen in the kingdom. These character traits are true of every Christian to some measure. The flesh that remains for each Christian will determine what level uh, 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 they're present and, and you know, we're all in this process. If you're a Christian, there's a process of sanctification where we are uh, that flesh is being reduced as our heart uh, has already been changed, but that flesh remains. But make no mistake, make no mistake, every one of these character traits must be present in the life of a Christian. There are not certain Christians who are meek. There are not others who are merciful and a few that are peacemakers. No, no Christian can claim that that one doesn't apply to me or I'm not just like that. Jesus says, no, all of these, all of these are true of citizens of my kingdom. The next point I want to make, and this is the great opportunity we have here this morning to do this overview, is that each and every one of these beatitudes were, were selected by Jesus with great purpose. There's an order to them. One is absolutely connected to the next, and they all build on one another. Okay? And... We're going to, hopefully, we'll see that here as we go through the Beatitudes this morning. Next, the, the Beatitudes are opposite of what the world admires. Okay? This was true in the time of Jesus, as, as we stated in the beginning, of what the expectation was of things that were, were, were uh, admired, things that made people happy, um, power, money, many of the same things that, 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 uh, that people would, uh, would admire today. One of the other things that I, I would want to point out this morning, I'm not going to get into, uh, into depth on this one either, but I, I commend you to, to go and do, off and do your own study um, by comparing the fruit of the Spirit um, to the Beatitudes. Um, we see that the, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I think when you compare... Those to, to the, the character traits listed here in the Beatitude, you'll see a, a great connection. Um, you can almost line them up, and I, I encourage you to, to do that in the coming week. Finally, these Beatitudes are character traits of citizens of the kingdom. 
are not natural to mankind in their fallen state. Each one of them can only be produced in a person by the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Some may try to follow these by their own efforts, but soon realize that it is an impossible task. It is only by the Holy Spirit removing a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh, in other words, regeneration, that one can begin to go down the path that Jesus lays out in these Beatitudes. Not only that, each step along the way is only enabled by the indwelling of that same Holy Spirit that it is a, that is a deposit guaranteeing the inheritance of every citizen of the kingdom. So I'm going to jump in headlong here this morning, right into the Beatitudes. The first one is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is not about material poverty. And it has nothing to do with social gospel messages that dominate our day. This has to do with perception of self. Some would say, Those who are poor in spirit are humble. I can't but mention that we live in a time that is very much the result of raising multiple generations in such a way with our educational system and the things that the kids watch on TV, driven by this deep need to bolster and foster self-esteem in children. And look what kind of society it's produced. We live in a society today where so much is wrapped up in uh, self-realized identity. And people are congratulated for all kind of things that are contrary to what God says is right. The reality of human nature is that all people esteem themselves too highly in their natural state. Until something happens, something has to happen. An intervention is required, and that intervention is initiated by God, the Holy Spirit. The poor in spirit are people who see their utter spiritual bankruptcy when they have some sense of the holiness of God and a deep sense of their own sinfulness. Think about Isaiah's response when he sees the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. What does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. You see, the Holy Spirit gives the poor in spirit eyes to see this and ears to hear it. The poor in spirit are those who now have a true sight of self as they relate to a holy and a perfect God. So I have to ask the question this morning, are you poor in spirit? Have you come to see who you really are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? The next one is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This idea of comforting of those who mourn comes from an Old Testament messianic prophecy. In fact, it it's the prophecy from Isaiah 61, verses 1, through two, one and 2. I'm not going to go there this morning, but um, Jesus went there whenever he was in Nazareth. 
He opened up the scroll in, in, in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, and, and he read uh, what Isaiah had to say. And part of that messianic prophecy, and you remember Jesus said today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. One of the parts of that prophecy, if you keep reading, uh, further than Jesus actually read as it was as recorded in Luke, is this, that, that, that one of the purposes of the Messiah, the one to come, was to comfort those who mourn. mourn. Mourn over or mourn about what? Is everyone who mourns the loss of a loved one eventually comforted? No. Those who lose a loved one and they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and they die in their sins, they are never comforted. So this is not at the heart of what Jesus has in mind. Is it mourning over one's sin? Yes, but we need to be careful here. Did Judas mourn over his betrayal of Jesus? Yes, he did. Was he ever comforted? No. No, he was not. So what does Jesus mean? Jesus is describing the mourning over one sin when they realize that they are utterly and completely spiritually bankrupt. This mourning leads to true repentance in which one turns from their sin and turns towards Jesus and his finished work on the cross for sinners so that they are now in a right relationship with God. Really, it's the difference between Judas and Peter, if you think about it. Why should one mourn over sin? One should mourn over sin because sin is an absolute affront to the magnificent and glorious God who created the universe. Sin, in essence, is robbing God of the glory and praise that he so richly deserves to receive from his creation. Not because of fear of punishment. Again, we see this here with Judas and Peter, right? Judas was afraid of the punishment that was going to come upon him, and he died a terrible death in his trespasses. But Peter, who truly repented, who truly felt remorse over his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ, he was restored. And he was restored with great purpose for the kingdom. Can you see how mourning over one's sins follows and is absolutely connected to the first beatitude, that of being poor in the spirit? One cannot truly mourn over their sin without a correct view of themselves. This mourning over sin is certainly the gateway into the Christian life and the Christian faith, but is also ever-present throughout the Christian's life in this world. As the Holy Spirit does a work of sanctification, Christians are made more and more aware of sin that remains because of their flesh. So there is a cycle of mourning and comforting, and that cycle should be ever-present throughout the life of a Christian. 
I have to ask this morning, is that true in your life? Is the Spirit revealing sin in your life? Do you mourn over that sin and repent and then feel the comfort of the Spirit as you are forgiven? Is that true about you? It is also true that the Christian will mourn over the sin that the, in the world around them. In the 18th century, there was a preacher by the name of George Whitfield. And George Whitfield would stand on Boston Commons speaking to 20,000 people. And here's a quote from what he would say. He say this, Listen, sinners, you're monsters, monsters of iniquity. You deserve hell, and the worst of your crimes is that criminals, though you've been, you haven't had the good grace to see it. If you will not weep for your sins and your crimes against the holy God, George Whitfield will weep for you. And then he would throw his head back, and he would cry like a baby in front of these people. Um, nobody preaches like that today. I don't know. Mike, are you going to do that next week? <laughs> but you see, he, he was truly torn up over the sin around him, right? And he wept and mourned over it. We also, there's, a book, there's a whole book in the Bible about this, right? In the Old Testament. What's the, what's the name of that book? Lamentations, right? Absolutely. Um, the prophets, they often mourned in, at the state of the nation of Israel. And we even see Jesus as the true prophet weeping over the sins of Jerusalem in, in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. So I have to ask this question of us all here this morning. Do you mourn over the state of this world? Does it bother you that there is so much open rebellion against the King of Glory everywhere you turn in this world? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I want to say this, meek is not weak or timid, or it's not a sense of cowardice. A good analogy that I once heard for this is to be meek like a, like a war horse. I, I, just, I like that picture. I know it's not really a thing anymore, but you know, it used to be that you'd have these war horses that were, they, they seemed to be you know, gentle, calm, cool, collected um, in the face of great, uh, great uh, conflict. What I want to say, too, is that this beatitude is the result of the first two beatitudes. When one has a true view of self and has mourned over their sin, and how it, and it, it will absolutely affect how they interact with others. And we can also see many of the fruit of the Spirit are wrapped up in this, in this, uh, this character trait that Christians ought to have. We see patience, right? We see peace. We see kindness. We see gentleness here and meekness. Self-control. All of those things, I think, are directly related to this idea of being meek. The meek do not claim their rights at every moment. They don't feel the need to defend themselves constantly. In essence, they inherit the earth here and now because they are content with their place and they accept with great gratitude the things that God has provided them. And they enjoy them and they're not constantly trying to get ahead because they know what they truly, truly deserve. And this makes me think about uh, you know, a Christian that I heard on the radio one time. It's the first time I ever heard anybody do this, but I've heard many people since. That question, how are you doing, 
right? That, that you know, the greeting that people do, and they're maybe not necessarily even all that uh, interested in how you're doing, but they ask it anyway. And uh, his answer, this guy's answer to that was, better than I deserve. You probably know who I'm talking about. But I've heard many people say that. Now, many Christians say that too. And that's, that's, a, that's a perfect picture. And I think it sums up this idea of being meek. Um, I have to ask the question this morning, is this you? Have, having been given a true sight of self and having mourned over, over your sin, have you so lived your life uh, under that realization that you uh, can now be counted among the meek? The fourth beatitude here this morning is, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, this is a pivotal, absolutely a pivotal beatitude. Up until now, there has been an emptying, right? The, 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 the citizen has, is being emptied of wrong views of self, of any self-reliance, all those sorts of things. And now, now they're going to be filled. It's interesting to note, too, that... The happy or blessed don't run after the things of this world that make other people happy. In essence, they don't, they don't run after happiness, right? They seek something else. What is the thing that they seek and that they desperately need? It's righteousness. They know they need it. They know they don't have it, and they don't, may not even know how to get it. And it produces in them a deep hunger and thirst that consumes every moment of their life. They're then ready at this point to receive the gospel. They see the offer of Christ's righteousness as a free gift, and it is exactly what they need. And they jump at the opportunity to receive it. They repent and they believe the gospel and the righteousness that they need, the righteousness of Christ, is credited to their account. But it doesn't stop there. They begin to realize that even after believing, they're not always righteous in their living. The flesh still remains and they sin and they are dissatisfied with this. They see this sin, and they mourn, and they repent, and they receive grace upon grace. This is the process of sanctification, and it is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Little by little, they are being transformed into the image of their king. It's interesting to, to note also here that Jesus uses the two basic bodily needs in this analogy. You know, you can go... A fair amount of time without eating, but you can't go very long without drinking. You need water, right? But an interesting thing, dead people aren't hungry or thirsty, right? Spiritually dead people do not hunger or thirst for righteousness. They first must be made spiritually alive by the Holy Spirit. Regeneration must take place in their life. Another interesting thing about this analogy is that Appetite is often a sign of improving health if one is sick. You can see how this relates to this process of sanctification that I just spoke of. As a Christian continues to hunger and thirst, it is a sign that they belong to God and that he is doing a work in their life. They are, in essence, healthy Christians. 
have to ask, is that true in your life? Have you passed through this hungering and thirsting for righteousness until God filled you up and satisfied you? Do you struggle with your sin and seek righteousness on a daily basis as you repent and believe? The next three Beatitudes are essentially the result of this work that God is doing in the life of the believer. And they are outward actions in many ways. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We, we are now seeing this result, as I just said. They, the merciful are merciful. Why? Because they have received mercy already. Christians ought to be the most forgiving people because they realize how much they've been forgiven. And there are many examples, of course, of Stephen. Um, and and the, the greatest example of our Lord Jesus Christ, who on the cross said, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I just have to ask the question here this morning. Do you forgive? Do you have a forgiving spirit? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And um, Brother Jason read Psalm 24 this morning, and um, it says in there that the, 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 the ones that will see God are the, the, those who have clean hands and a pure heart, and they will receive blessing, and they will receive righteousness. Um, this is what we, we look forward to, that great day when we will be changed and we will be able to be in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, too, to note that uh, how focused Jesus was in the heart. We're going to hear this in coming weeks, um, and, and, and the law being a matter of the heart and not of external things, right? This is completely opposite of what the Pharisees believed and taught. And the, the simple fact of the matter in, in regard to this idea of heart is that the heart of stone must be replaced with the heart of flesh. And this happens in the life of every Christian. Every Christian if you're a Christian here this morning, you are the recipient of a heart transplant. And because of that heart transplant, you can see things in the here and now. We look forward to the later. It's an already but not yet, right? Um, we see in nature, we see God, right? Because we had a heart transplant. We see God more clearly in the scriptures because we can spiritually see things we could not see before. Heart transplant. We see it in the preaching of the gospel. And we also see it in the fellowship of believers. And I just have to ask the question here this morning. Has God changed your heart? Finally, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In the New Testament, God is often referred to as the God of peace, right? One of Jesus' titles is Prince of Peace. And what I want to say about this is peacemaker, there's, there's a misperception, I think, in the world. And I think when people think peacemaker, they, they, they can think that it means appeaser. And that's not what it is. We've got to remember the progression here, right? The same person that is the peacemaker is the one who is Pure in heart. The pure in heart do not compromise with evil. God as peacemaker did not compromise 
making peace with men, cost him the death of Jesus' son, that he may be just and the justifier of the wicked. There was a great price to pay, and he paid it. Now, as uh, Brother Jason mentioned this morning earlier too, there ought to be peace amongst Christians, right? We ought to agree with one another in the faith. Um, and that, that ought to be evident, right, in our, in our fellowships. And, and Because it it's such a scandal when, when there's not agreement amongst brothers and when there's enmity between brothers. So there ought to be peace here in the church, and finally, we get to be part of God's reconciling, of God reconciling lost sinners to himself. This is our role as ambassadors of the kingdom. We are given a message from the king to take to his enemies. And that message is a message of redemption and reconciliation. Not only that, as, not only are we citizens of the kingdom, but we are more than that, it says in this beatitude, Right? Jesus says that peacemakers will be what? Called sons of God. Sons of God. Now, the next verses, this next beatitude is really a transition we see. And we see in in verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it is an amazing thing. Jesus is describing what will happen to those who exhibit the character traits of citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And and here it is, the opposite of what would be called blessed, or what people would call blessed, right, or blessed. Certainly opposite of what a Jewish expectation for the treatment of citizens of the kingdom that their Messiah would usher in. These citizens who are truly happy will be persecuted by this world as they exhibit the character traits of the kingdom of heaven. This shows the enmity between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And for what are they persecuted? They're persecuted for righteousness' sake. I'm going to say this morning that there is no value, no benefit to you if you are persecuted by others because you are a jerk or for any other reason, what things you may post on Facebook or whatever the case may be. There's no value in that. There's only value in being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And for, as we're going to see in the next verse, for the name of Jesus. As we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to see how Jesus is treated. He tells his disciples that the world will have the same thing that they had for him. And what is it? Hatred. The world hates Christians because the world hates hated and continues to hate Jesus Christ. The next verse, this is where the real transition happens. Jesus makes it personal. I'm going to read it in the way that you'll see that. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus makes it personal. It almost felt theoretical before. Blessed are these people, right? Now it's 
It's right there. The disciples are hearing, yes. And he's preparing them, right? He's preparing them because he knows what's going to happen to them. And we see the first time that the disciples get, one of the first times that they're, that they're persecuted in, in Acts chapter 5, what happened? They, left the, they, 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 got, they got beaten in front of the council for what? For, for declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching in his name. They received a beating and they went back on their way rejo- rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They were beaten and yet they were truly happy. I'm going to move on now to two passages of purpose here this morning. The first is this, a passage about salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And what is salt like? And what does it do? Well, salt flavors food, we know that, and it also preserves some foods from decay, and it also makes people thirsty. Um, these are sort of three things that uh, characteristics that salt has. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning, other than to say this, that, that if you are a citizen of the kingdom, you have a purpose, like salt has a purpose. And if, if that, that purpose is not being fulfilled, that thing that has a purpose is really good for nothing, I think is what Jesus is saying here. Um, and that purpose is going to be seen in the next passage here. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good work. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The analogy of light is, is, is what Jesus uses here. And the point is that light allows people to see in the dark and it cannot and should not be hidden we are called to be light in a dark world jesus said that we are if we are citizens of the kingdom called to let our light shine before men how how do we do that by letting them see our good works so good works actually do have a prominent place in the christian faith in the christian life now Good works were not justified by those good works before a holy God, and they're not a means by which we are saved. No, salvation comes from grace through faith. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, right? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we, I think we have a, there's, there's a bit of a dilemma here that we need to see and we need to consider. And I want to know if you see it here. We are called to do good works and so let our light shine that others would glorify not us, but the God who changed us for this purpose. The Beatitudes show us the great work that God has done to make us citizens of the kingdom. We know that there is no good thing in us apart from Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we are not the source of the light, but God is. And I'm going to end with this here this morning. The best analogy that I've ever seen in this regard is this. 
When you look up in the night sky and you see all kinds of stars and planets and moons and and the earth's moon, we're called to let our light shine, not like the stars, right? The stars are the source of their own light, right? We are called to let our light shine like the moon. What does the moon do? Is the moon moon a light source? No, it's not. The moon reflects the light of the sun. And when it does that, people can see in the dark. And what I want you to see here this morning is that we have a purpose. And that purpose is to glorify God. You see, when people see that light that shines through us, they see and they give glory not to us, but to our Father who is in heaven. You know, the end of all being is not the happiness of man. The, the purpose of citizenship in the kingdom is not that we are blessed. It's a byproduct. It's awesome, right? We, we, we are blessed. We are truly happy and fulfilled. But the end of all being is the glory of God. And the purpose of being a citizen of the kingdom of God is to bring glory and honor and praise to our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.